Welcome to Monsters Among Us. I am your guide, Derek Hayes. Welcome to the program, everyone, and I am truly sorry that I am a day late. You see, yesterday, the day before, and the day before that, I was in the center of the Mojave Desert, digging up legend after legend, story after story, and weirdo after weirdo. As I teased about on the past couple episodes, good friend of mine and awesome podcasting host, David Floor of Blurry Photos, and another good friend of mine, cinematographer Will Rogie. We took off for the desert to shoot some footage for our upcoming Kickstarter video. So stay tuned for that. We're hoping to have it released with a little luck by the end of the month. So I actually got home late yesterday afternoon, and I was simply gassed. Now all things considered, I have an excellent show lined up for you guys. This is going to be a grab bag episode. Now, each of these stories that we're about to listen to, I have not heard fully myself. I've listened long enough to figure out what the subject matter is, who's calling, and where from. But the rest is as big a mystery to me as it is to you guys. So without further ado, let's kick things off with a call that ties into last week's episode. If you remember back to the last call... Kay called in from the state of Indiana with a Bigfoot encounter that seemed to have happened moments before she called in. Well, as it turns out, that's not the only Indiana Bigfoot encounter that I have in my bank. Our first call of the evening comes to us also from the state of Indiana and seems to describe something very similar to what Kay reported just last week. The following is Garrett's call from the state of Indiana. Hi, Derek. Uh, love your show. Big fan. My name's Garrett, and I'm calling you from Mitchell, Indiana. My uh, creepy story hap- happened in, uh, I think it was on July 2008. I was about to be a freshman in high school. And my buddy and I used to walk uh, from town to this bridge. Uh, the bridge was at the end of town by the uh, the bridge. It was underneath the railroad tracks, and we used to walk together on the railroad tracks and uh, so this one week um, uh, he didn't come with me he was with his grandparents I guess so I went by myself walked on the railroad tracks and and uh, so this one day I decided that I'd walk further past the bridge it was it was July it was hot and uh, so I decided to walk 
further further along. Well, as I'm walking along the railroad tracks, I see something. It was the size of a, it was shape of a person. It was all black, and it jumped from the field onto the railroad track, and uh, it was all black. I can I could see the arms and the hands, the head, the torso, the legs, and it was walking towards me. And so I was curious, and I I just continued walking from where I was, because I wanted to see uh, who it was, and it, it looked it looked so tall to me, and uh, I it was something, and it looked like it you know seven feet tall or something and so I continued walking and the and whatever it was or who it was stood up and looked at me and then I distinctly remember this thing jumped from the railroad tracks back into the field and so I was really curious and so I continued walking down the railroad tracks and uh, I looked into the field to see if I could see who it was or what it was and I didn't see anything and this part might have been my imagination but I as I stood there I swear I heard uh, like a oh that really scared me so I I ran back to where I came from uh, going back to the bridge along the railroad tracks and I, I ran back home so uh, I called my, my parents, and I was shook up. I told them I didn't know what I saw. I thought I saw maybe a Sasquatch or a, a really large man, and they thought maybe I saw a homeless man, but uh, it saw me. It, it didn't want to have anything to do with me. So I don't know what I saw, but it was black. It was looked like it was built like a very large man. Um, that's my story. So I, I love your show. Uh, I hope you can uh, play this, and uh, uh, thank you. Bye. Thank you, Garrett. Now, just last week, I suggested that any Bigfoot sighting in a state like Indiana, a populated state, a fairly flat state, could potentially be migrating creatures, possibly making their way north for the summer, or maybe even south for the winter. Now, as it turns out, both Garrett's experience and Kay's from last week took place in or around the month of July. Now, could that be just a coincidence, or does that tell us that this may be a migrating period? Now, I should point out that these two sightings took place two years apart. This is just an idea I have. There is no evidence or research to back any of this up. But to me, it makes just about as much sense as anything else. However, I will include that Indiana has two area codes, one in the northern half and the other covering the southern half. Well, Kay's call came from the northern area code, while Garrett's, his came from the south. So at least in my eyes, that helps to support my little migration theory. Either that, or the state has a Sasquatch in every corner. Thank you again, Garrett, for sharing that tale. Now, our next submission was submitted anonymously from the state of Washington. 
Hey, Derek. So, I'm from Washington, and uh, I live in this little area. Um, there's a town called East Wenatchee, and it's pretty big to me because I grew up on top of a mountain that's right nearby. And so I'm 20 miles away from this, from East Wenatchee, and um, lived up on a on a farm up on the top of this mountain. And on the other side of the mountain, about 10 miles or so from where I live, there's a uh, uh, a, a tiny little like one road town called Waterville. And uh, one night, this was in my junior year of high school, so it was 2016. And it was during, during the summertime. I couldn't tell you exactly when. It was probably June, July-ish, I'd, I'd want to say. Um, I was hanging out with a friend of mine that was from the smaller town, Waterville. We were hanging out with some people over in the larger town. And I was taking her home that night. And it was probably 12.30 or 1 o'clock in the morning. Not a lot of traffic goes up and down that mountain at 12 or 1 o'clock in the morning. I mean, it's a, don't get me wrong, it's a fairly populated place for being as far out as it is, but there's not a lot of action that goes on, you know. So I'm driving this gal home. We're having a good time. We're laughing and joking, and there's a part of the road that's called the S-curve. Well, that's what me and my family call it. I mean, it's fairly self-explanatory. You curve one way, you curve the other. Then you curve back and it climbs up and uh, as you round the last corner, it goes into a uh, into a straight stretch for about four miles or so. So as I'm coming around this last corner, I start speeding up and uh, I was looking at my friend saying something and I looked back to the road and uh, there was a person in the middle of the road, in the middle of my lane and probably only 10 or 15 feet in front of my car. It was close enough that I could only see from, like, his hip up. I could not see his legs. I could not see his feet. And so I had no time to slow down or try to stop. So I just immediately yanked the wheel to the left, and then I yanked it back to the right and slammed on my brakes, came to a stop, and pulled into the, the ditch on the side of the road. And I start immediately laying on my horn, because, like, what, what's this dude's problem, you know? Well, when I was right there about to hit him, he he never turned and looked. He never, like, like a normal person would. I mean, it's the middle of the night. I have my brights on. This dude's walking across the road. He, you know, any other person would turn and look at the car that's speeding towards you, you know? I very vividly remember being, when I was that close to him, when I saw him, um, he never turned and looked at me. So I swerved around him. I'm in the in the ditch. I'm laying on the horn. I'm looking at him in the rearview mirror, and he's not turning and looking at me at, at all. As he walked across the road, he had his eyes fixed straight forward, slightly down. And he had walked all the way over into the ditch next to the road and was standing there staring just straight forward slightly down he wasn't moving I didn't really get a good look at him because I mean I, I got a decent look when I was right there in front of him but that was the only real good look I got because the rest of it he was in my brake lights I want to say that he was wearing like a bright like yellow or orangish shirt and then 
he had a hat on, I, I want to say, and I couldn't tell you what shoes or pants because I couldn't see him. And I, I sat there and laid on the horn. Like I said, he never turned and looked. He never responded to me at all. And, you know, I, I played with the idea that it could have been, you know, somebody uh, who was, um, you know, on drugs or something or whatever, but he was in the middle of the road on this straightway. There's only two roads, like two offshoot roads, within a two-mile radius of where I saw this guy or whatever at. There's only two offshoot roads, and they just go back, and there's maybe three or four houses on these offshoot roads. From the from where he was, there's probably a mile and a half to two miles to the nearest house, and there was no car in sight, not on any of those offshoot roads. Because I looked. I was like, where'd this dude come from? There couldn't have been anywhere that I know of that he could have came from. And like I said, I'm 20 miles from one town, 10 miles from the other. And he was just there. And I have no idea why. I have no idea how. And the fact that he would not respond as I almost killed him. Like, I was very, very close to hitting this person. And, you know, I thought about maybe somebody being on drugs but we're so far out that I just, I don't understand how that'd be possible. And I mean, you would have to, what, like be, you know, you have to walk miles and miles and miles just to walk across the street and stand in the ditch. And we don't have a problem with vagrants up there. Cause again, we're so far out. So I just, I didn't understand where he came from, what he was doing and why he didn't react to me almost completely destroying him with my car, you know. I never had a, something like that again. You know, I drive that road every day, twice a day, and I never had anything like that happen before or after. And no, nobody else that I know has ever reported anything like that. It was just really weird. It didn't make any sense. Um, but thank you for letting me share my, my call. I got a couple more stories I'll be calling in, but I'm listening from the ground up on your podcast, so I'm only up to, like, season four. Um there was an episode, I don't remember what episode number, but there was a girl named America calling from up here in Washington um, who had the same kind of situation uh long ways away from my town, but still, you know, so sort of what reminded me of it, um, you know, I listen to your podcast at work, and it just it makes a day fly by. So thank you for an awesome podcast, and um, I'll be in touch. Thank you, Derek. Thank you, caller. These kind of stories are bone-chilling. Because oftentimes you're out there, alone, in a vehicle, in the dark. You have no idea what is out there, but your imagination has no problems filling in the blanks. And then you run into something like this. A stranger, where a stranger shouldn't be. And not only that, but the stranger behaves strangely. He doesn't react to the vehicle. He doesn't seem shocked that he almost lost his life. It's difficult and near impossible to narrow down what exactly our witness saw here, but I can say there are hundreds, if not thousands, of stories just like his. Stories of near misses, of disappearing hitchhikers, and other roadside horrors. So thank you again, caller, for sharing that story. Next up, we head back east to the state of Illinois. The following story 
comes to us via James. Yes, Derek, this is James in the state of Illinois, about 60 miles south of Chicago. And what I'm calling about, I'm calling about, uh, I guess it could be an abduction, although I don't remember what, what happened, but it's just what, when I woke up, what happened and what I observed that made me know something had happened. And uh, I've had these experiences ever since I was a child. But this particular case here is um, 1989, and I uh, was living in a little small house, and I had just divorced, so I was living by myself. So I had a water bed, uh, me and my wife, but after we separated, I had a water bed. So I always like to keep my house tidy. So what I did, I would make the bed, and, and I would put a initial uh, sheet and blanket down, and I would take the blanket and put it up under the uh, the bed and make it real tight. And uh, it would be like the bed is made. Then I had a, another blanket that I would sleep on. So when I get up in the morning and go to work, all I had to do was take the other blanket off and fold it up, and my bed was made. And there's no way you can get up under here because if you know a water bed, you know, if you put it up under there, and I put it all the way up to the top uh, of the bed, to the head of the bed. So uh, this particular night, I had a rough, night of sleep and um i woke up like at about 3 30 and there's something about the time between 2 and 4 a.m that's just weird with alien abductions or any kind of weird stuff and i've just noticed this i've always had these experiences around that time but anyways i wake up and uh i get up to go use the bathroom i go to get up to get use the bathroom and i can't get out of the bed you know, and I'm trying to move around, and I look over, and it's like I'm in the bed up under this initial cover that's still wrapped around up under the water bed, so it's tight. And it's like, it's almost like someone took it and put me back in there and put me up under this bed, so they had to take me and from the front and angle me down and slide me in. There's no way in the world I could have gotten in this bed and put this cover back around me like this. So it was just weird, you know, so I had to struggle to get it up under the cover, but I just thought it was a, a weird thing. So this is what happened to me, and again, this is James, and uh, I'm about 60 miles south of Joliet, and I enjoy listening to your show. Thanks. Bye. Thank you, James. And what I'm about to talk about, I've spoke about before in the past, but it's probably been at least three or four seasons, so let's cover that again. For people that believe they may be abducted by aliens, there's a little hack you can do to kind of test that theory out. And what some people do is they put their pajamas on inside out when they go to bed. Then if they wake up in the morning and the pajamas are put on correctly, then they know they did not dress themselves. Now as James was telling his story, I could not help but see the parallels in those two things. What if the creatures, the aliens, the entities... What if they brought him back and everybody uses their blankets? So they simply slid him back in there, not knowing that he had a special reason for the way these blankets were arranged. Now, of course, it's entirely possible that James, with all the stress going through his divorce and living alone, ended up suffering from some sort of sleepwalking episode. And maybe he found a way to crawl himself in there without waking himself up. Now, granted, that is quite the stretch but so is an alien abduction. 
So either way, hopefully, that's the first and only time, James, that you have to worry about something that eerie and off-putting. But in the event that something else should happen, we fully expect to hear from you. Thanks again for sharing your story, and keep your eyes on the skies. Up next, we head south to the state of Georgia. The following was submitted by Josh. Hey, Derek. My name is Josh. I'm calling from uh, Macon, Georgia. So I have a alien story that happens um, in the nearby town of Byron, Georgia. It's probably about 10 minutes away. Um, and I was living... Me and my family were living with my grandmother at the time in her house, and um, it was I, – I was really young, probably about five or six, um, and I was – it was during the winter, um, and during the winter, my bedroom was not very well insulated because it used to be a porch, and they made it into a room, so I would sleep in the living room. Um, so I was laying there late at night. Um, it's probably about two in the morning, um, having trouble going to sleep. And I remember like laying on the couch and facing the dining room, which on the other side of the dining room were two very big windows that faced the, uh, backyard. Um, so the backyard was, um, was away from the road. So there was no lights or anything except for, um, I think there was like a flood light outside, but it was just normal white light. Um, and I remember laying there being awake and all of a sudden the windows just being lit up with like a, almost like a pale green light. Um, and the, they had shades on them, so you couldn't see through the windows, but it was lit up and there's nothing that was in the backyard that should be making the windows light up like that. Um, so, um, I, I really don't know what it was like i said i was five or six so in in all honesty it could possibly have been a dream um but it just the way sorry i'm trying to gather my thoughts but just the the way that i remember it it's extremely vivid and it doesn't it seems almost more like a memory that i've pushed to the back of my mind if that makes sense um but it didn't stop there that later after I saw the green light, um, now this part could possibly have been a dream. I don't remember this as clearly as I remember the other part, but I, I have a vague memory of red orbs coming into the living room where I was at and kind of flying around and then flying back out the window. Nothing like aggressive or anything. It almost reminded me, sorry, it just started raining. I'm driving home. You might hear that, but it almost reminded me of, um, like the movie batteries not included where the aliens come in the little like little tiny uh, ufos it almost reminded me of that um so that's my story uh hope you can use it love the podcast um it's actually inspired me to start my own podcast and so I, i love all the creepy stories and just keep up the good work thanks thanks josh i know the feeling that you're talking about you can't really tell if it was a dream or something you actually experienced. My great-grandmother lived a few hundred feet from my grandparents' house, a small house that I believe my great-grandfather built in the, I want to say the 40s. I may be wrong on that part. 
Either way, we would go visit, and we'd had a few family get-togethers there before she passed away in, I believe, 1992. But the point I'm getting at here is that she had a staircase that led to an attic. Well, the attic door was always shut and was made to look exactly like the rest of the ceiling. So to my young brain, there was a stairway that led to the ceiling. And for some reason, my imagination just went wild with this. I imagined all the creatures that would pass through the ceiling and live in the attic, or that maybe somebody was sealed up in there, and I had nightmares about this staircase. I remember distinctly climbing up the staircase and seeing eyes through the cracks. But here's the problem. I'm not entirely sure that this was a dream. I'm 99% sure. It makes a lot of sense that it was a dream. No one ever spoke about that place being haunted. Extended families still live there to this day and we haven't heard a single word. But in my brain, it's hard to determine which parts were dreams and which parts were real. So the bottom line of all of this is that these memories, these thoughts, they stick with you. They're burned into your brain. I'll be 40 in less than a month, and I still think about those stairs way more often than any normal adult man should. Thank you again, Josh, for taking the time to share. Now, before we move on to our next call of the evening, I'm going to breeze through these announcements very, very quickly. Follow us on social media. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. There's also the Facebook group, which I highly, highly recommend that you follow. There's a ton of merchandise available in the shop. Just visit the website at monstersamonguspodcast.com and click on the shop tab. Multiple t-shirts, mugs, stickers, uh, hats. There's all kinds of stuff. So, So if you'd like to support the show, that's a great way to do it, and I could not be more thankful. And speaking of supporting the show please consider contributing to the Patreon campaign. Simply visit patreon.com and search for Monsters Among Us podcast. There, each month, you will get two, at least two, bonus episodes, all for the low, low price of $4 a month. And it's not really about purchasing new episodes. It's more about helping the show continue, helping the show grow, and helping the show stick around. So a huge thank you to all those that have already contributed to the Patreon campaign. And a big thank you to all those that will contribute in the future. That said, on Monday I'll be releasing the next Patreon episode, which, a quick reminder, sounds exactly like these episodes. And lastly, next week is already the midpoint of Season 8. It's almost impossible to believe that, but it's true. So that means we need to start thinking ahead to the Hometown Legends special, the Season 8 finale. So if you have a Hometown Legend call that you would like to share, now's the time to get started. Simply call the hotline at 1-888-608-NIGHT. That's 1-888-608-6444. And leave your legend. We're looking for folklore, haunted places, tragedies, escaped animals. We want to hear about it. And be sure to mention Hometown Legends early on in the call so it's easier for me to find. Now, with those out of the way, our next call comes to us from Samantha. Hey Derek, this is Samantha. First, I want to congratulate you and Sarah on your marriage. I hope you both have many happy years together. 
This story has many plausible explanations, but I wanted to share it to use it to test the water before, you know, sharing my paranormal experience. Plus, it's a fun story. Before I begin, it's important to note that I had a sleigh bed as a child, and the distance from the floor to the mattresses was about two feet tall. <sighs> I was about five or six years old when this happened. My mother put me to bed, and begrudgingly, I was trying to go to sleep. I've always had trouble sleeping and sometimes would lay in bed for hours before finally falling asleep. <sighs> to counter the boredom and frustration of not being able to sleep, I would come up with stories or have conversations with my stuffed animals. This night was no different, and I started saying the eeny, meeny, miny, mo rhyme. I repeated the rhyme a few times, and during one of the repeats, when I got to the meeny part, a voice interjected and said, Mo. We finished the rhyme where we would each take a turn saying the next word. Once the rhyme was finished, I asked the voice who they were, and the voice replied, I'm under your bed. For whatever reason, the answer didn't scare me, and I recall asking it a few more questions, giggling at the answers, and going back to saying the rhyme with the voice. I never felt threatened or as if I was in danger. At some point, I fell asleep and was awoken when I heard a knock on our front door and the sound of my mother's voice. When I got up to see what was going on, I saw that there was a police officer at our door, and he was informing my mother that a burglar had broken into a couple apartments in our complex. When I went back to bed, I began saying the rhyme again. But this time, the voice did not reply. Thank you. Hope you can use that. Thank you, Samantha. Now, your story actually reminds me of a ghost story I remember hearing a lot as a kid. And being that it's mid-October, I figured, why not? Let's just go ahead and read this little ghost story. So once there was a beautiful young girl who lived in a small town just south of Farmersburg. Her parents had to go to town for a while, so they left their daughter home alone, but protected by her dog, which was a very large collie. The parents told the girl to lock the doors and windows after they had left, and she obeyed her parents. But there was one window in the basement that she could not close completely. She tried as best she could, and she finally got the window shut, but it just would not lock. She went back upstairs, but just to make sure that no one could get in, she put the deadbolt on the basement door. She had some dinner, watched a TV show, and decided to go to sleep for the night at about 12 a.m. She crawled into her bed and snuggled up with her dog and fell asleep. At one point, she suddenly woke up, and when she turned to look at the clock, it was 2.30 a.m. She listened for a moment, and when she didn't hear anything, she snuggled down again and wondered what had woken her. Well, just as she was about to fall asleep, she heard a little noise. It was a dripping sound. She thought that maybe she hadn't closed the faucet tight enough after she had brushed her teeth. And now it was dripping into the drain of her sink. She was tired and decided to ignore it and go back to sleep. The girl didn't know why, but she felt uneasy and a little nervous. She reached her hand over the edge of her bed and let her dog lick her hand to feel safe 
knowing he would protect her. Again, at about 3.45 a.m., she woke hearing the dripping. She was annoyed, but still felt sleepy and lazy. She went back to sleep anyway. Again, she reached down and let the dog lick her hand. Then she fell back to sleep. At 6.52 a.m., the girl decided that she had had enough. She got up just as her parents were pulling up to the house. Good, she thought. Now somebody can fix the sink, because I know I didn't leave it running. She walked to the bathroom, and there was the collie dog, skinned and hung up on the curtain rod. The noise she heard was its blood dripping into a puddle onto the floor. The girl screamed and ran into her bedroom to get a weapon in case someone was still in the house. And there on the floor, next to her bed, she saw a small note written in blood saying, Humans can lick too, my beautiful. So I guess, Samantha, it's a good thing that you didn't dangle your hand over the bed. Thanks again for taking the time to share. Sometimes, stories that involve other humans are the scariest stories of all. Now our next tale of the evening takes us back to the state of Washington. The following is Troy's submission. Hi, uh, my name's Troy. I'm from Washington State. I unfortunately do not remember the exact date or time of this encounter. Um, I'm good with events and faces, not good with the numbers stuff. Um, But this was, I want to say, 2007-ish. I was in community college out, um, out in Moses Lake, and the sighting uh, took place um, late one night. I was out with an ex-girlfriend of mine who lived uh, just down the street. We lived in this suburb um, outside of town, um, and across, our houses were on the same side of the street, and across from the street, there's this big green, you know, green grassy park. Um, and we're kind of laying down. It's a clear night. We're talking, and we suddenly see this, like, this weird. I want to say UFO, but it's not like it's not a UFO, and it's not a cryptid. Um, I'll preface this by saying that I am a biologist by training, and I know a fair bit about specific animals, and specifically, I know what a bat looks like. This looked like a bat but it wasn't a bat. It was kind of bulbous and brown, like you could tell in the dark sky against the stars that it was brown. Uh, Its wings were flapping slowly and methodically, and it moved kind of like a balloon. Not quite like a balloon, but kind of like a balloon. Um, Again, if you've ever seen a bat, they, they flap their wings very frenetically, and they're kind of all over the place, but this object was not. And I look at my ex, I'm like, did you see that? She's like, yeah, that was weird. But, you know, there's only one of them. And we keep talking about whatever it is we're talking about. I can't remember at this point. Um, Later that night, I want to say it's the same night, um, but we see a group of these things. Again, you can tell tell it's kind of like a dull brown, kind of like a milk chocolatey color. 
you know, if you get smeared on your fingers. And they're moving very close together, which I've never seen bats do. I've never seen really anything but swallows do. These were not swallows or sparrows or anything. Um, and they were moving and kind of almost not quite bumping together, but they were like, <laughs> it was like a bunch of balloons where they were like, like, there's no real way I can like kind of explain this without sounding like I'm pitching some weird Monty Python sketch, really, that they weren't touching, but they appeared to be almost bouncing off each other, like they had some sort of repellent for, like, like some sort of like, you know, when you push two magnets together in the, um, and they kind of repel each other, it was like they had this like anti-gravity thing between them. Um, I have no clue what they were. I'm not sure if it was a cryptid or a UFO. Um, I'm not quite sure it was big enough to call it a Garuda, but maybe that's like the best kind of um, category for it. Um, yeah, I've never seen anything like that before. Never seen anything like that since. Um, I'm wondering if maybe if any of your listeners have any ideas of what it is, and I would love to hear your thoughts on it. I have many more stories that I will hopefully share in the future. Thank you. Love the podcast. Keep up the great work. Thanks, Troy. Now, for those that aren't familiar, the Garuda is a legendary bird or bird-like creature in Hindu and Buddhist mythology. Garuda is described as the king of the birds and a kite-like figure, a kite being a type of raptor. He is shown in either zoomorphic form, giant bird with partially open wings, or an anthropomorphic form, a man with wings and some bird-type features. Now the Garuda is said to be a protector with the ability to fly everywhere to protect those against its archenemy, the serpent. However, there is another cryptid I think is worth mentioning, a cryptid that I will admit 100% sounds made up, the Batsquatch. Now, the Batsquatch is a flying cryptid that was allegedly sighted near Mount St. Helens in the 1980s, which would also put us in the right location. It resembles a flying primate similar to the Ahul or the Orang Bate of Southeast Asia. The creature is said to have yellow eyes, blue fur, sharp teeth, and bird-like feet, and leathery bat-like wings that span up to 50 feet in addition, the Basquatch is said to be 9 feet tall and has the ability to affect car engines. Now, For a little background, in April of 1994, Brian Canfield was driving in Washington's Pierce County when his truck suddenly died. Canfield said a large creature landed in front of him. He said it was human-like, 9 feet tall with bat-like wings, and also sported a blue coat of fur. However, ever since then, it has not been seen, and skeptics dismiss it as a simple hoax. So obviously, Troy, I'm not saying that what you experienced was either of these two creatures, but I think it's important to know what other people have reported in the past. Thanks for taking the time to share, and please let me know if anybody else out there has experienced any other strange, flying humanoids. And just like that, we've reached the final call of the evening. And this one, at least as far as I've listened, is quite intriguing. The following comes to us from Craig in the state of Arkansas.
Hello, uh, Derek. My name is Craig, and uh, I have a story to share with you and uh, the other listeners. Uh, I just discovered your podcast, and uh, I wanted to share this story, this really unusual thing that happened to me uh, back in 2004. Uh, it was uh, late fall, so it was uh, quite cool. Uh, I used to work at that time as a locomotive engineer for the uh, Arkansas-Missouri Railroad. Um, there's a long, heavy grade. Well, let me back up a moment. Um, the train that I was in charge of ran from Springdale, Arkansas to Fort Smith, Arkansas, and back. It was an evening train. Um, we would run from basically about 5 o'clock in the afternoon uh, to 5 in the morning. It was a good 12-hour uh, shift for the most part. Anyway, between the town of Winslow, which is uh, up in the Boston Mountains, it's the proverbial wide spot in the road, uh, but it's the top of a very heavy grade uh, coming up from uh, Chester, Arkansas. And uh, the trains that we would bring out of Fort Smith would be so heavy that we couldn't make the pull up the mountain uh, um, with the train intact. So what we would do is called doubling the hill. We would stop at Chester, uncouple half of the train, take half of the train up to Winslow. There was a siding there at Winslow that we would set the first half of the train out on and then we would back just the locomotives down to Chester grab the rest of the train and pull it up the mountain stop it on the main line uncouple those cars on the main line double over to the um, passing siding grab the first half of our train couple up to the second half of our train put the train back together and then we would run on to Springfield, or Springdale, excuse me. Well, one night in 2004, like I say, it was late, late fall, uh, it was cold evening, foggy, a uh, very creepy night in itself. And uh, the conductor, it was just a two-man crew, myself and uh, my conductor, who was a young man at the time named Ross. And uh, so we were pulling up the hill, and uh, you go through a long railroad tunnel, and as soon as you come out of the tunnel, you're in Winslow. And uh, like I say, it's it's a wide spot in the road, uh, a quaint little town, but little more than that. And uh, as we came through Winslow, I looked to the side of the track, and I thought I saw a figure standing there. And as we got closer I realized it was it looked like maybe a teenage girl very long blonde hair the hair her hair was she was standing there with her arms slightly away from her body she was in a nightgown uh, a light lacy kind of nightgown uh, she was in her bare feet now she was standing on ballast, uh, which is the rock that 
you know when you see a railroad track the rock that the that the actual track and ties are in on our railroad we use decomposed granite which is when it's busted up very sharp angles i mean you'll tear a pair of work boots up in six months walking on the stuff she was standing on it in bare feet she had her hair her head was tilted forward so her hair you couldn't see her face her hair was long and it came down over her face we passed her when we passed her we were not more than maybe three feet from her you know from the as the train passed she did not move a muscle she did not show any kind of reaction at all very creepy incredibly creepy now ross came over to my side of the cab and was sour too and it wasn't she wasn't like a spirit or a ghost you could see the breeze was blowing her nightgown um we went by her both of us were just absolutely freaked out we couldn't believe what we'd just seen and uh anyway so we uh continued on down the track and then ross dropped off the engines at the switch (laughs) he wasn't very happy about that being alone out there uh he threw the switch i backed the uh train the first half of the train into the siding came back out he aligned the switch and then we started to back back up to uh down the hill to get the second half of the train we went by her we were watching of course we were absolutely transfixed and as we went by she was still standing there had not moved a muscle went by her again and uh just both of us absolutely creeped out the whole trip back down the mountain that was all we could talk about what you know what was this what had happened were were we both seeing things so we went down we coupled onto the second half of the train uh pumped off the air brakes and off off we went back up the mountain uh we got to winslow and sure enough she was still standing there she'd moved a little bit but she was still standing, still barefoot, still on that ballast, standing in exactly the same way. And it was frightening, absolutely frightening. We rolled past her. Uh, now, at, at this point, Ross was really scared because he was going to have to drop down, uncouple the engines from the cars, and then, you know, he was going to have to spend a lot of time down at that switch by himself uh so we pulled forward i was ross was constantly staying on the radio with me he uh um you could tell he was absolutely scared to death and i was too i kept looking down the side of the locomotive just expecting uh anything to come walking up there so we uh backed in uh got a hold of the train, got it back together. Uh, I could hear Ross on the radio just running along the ballast to get back up to the engine so we could go. Uh, He got back on the train, and uh, so we started heading our way back to 
Springdale just as soon as I could get that locomotives, the locomotives pulling that train. Uh, I asked people, we had people that lived in the vicinity that worked for the railroad. I asked them if they had ever heard, as we started to roll back to Springdale, after the initial fright, uh, started to taper off and I started to think more rationally, I thought, well, maybe this was a disturbed young girl. Uh, maybe she was a runaway, something of that sort, trying to find a rational explanation. So I asked around, like I said, we had people that worked for the railroad that lived in the vicinity. None of them, none of them had heard uh, knew anything about a young girl, a troubled young girl. Nobody knew anything about a runaway. Um, she was there. We saw her that evening. We never saw her again in all in years of running up and down that railroad at night. Never saw her again. It was just that one night. And uh, I just, I wish I could put you in the cab with us to just it was the most creepiest frightening thing that I'd ever seen in my life well thank you very much Derek I wanted to share that with you and I really enjoy the podcast keep up the good work thank you very much goodbye thank you Craig this is one of those stories that you just can't put a label on on the surface it certainly seems like a young woman was taking advantage of a creepy night to prank a couple of train operators. But a few of the details Craig gave seemed to work against that theory. Craig mentioned that it was cold out that night. He mentioned that there were sharp rocks where the figure was standing. And he even asked around to see if anyone else in that area is known for pranks or mental illness. So maybe there is someone out there listening that knows something about this story. Or there are other sighting reports. Is there possibly a legend in place that might shed some light on this story? Until then, I'll just sit back and enjoy this creepy tale. And I must say that Craig, you told it oh so well. Thank you again, Craig, for sharing that story. And that's going to do it for this episode. Monsters Among Us is written and produced by me, Derek Hayes. Additional support is provided by Addie Lloyd, Warren Ponabbitt, and Tony Bell. All audio used in this production is done so under the protection of fair use. And the amazing music you're listening to, that's Coag music. Thank you all for listening, and until next week. you see today I'm in a bit of a rush. My Ohio State Buckeyes play at 5.30 and I have to hurry up and get done before the game starts. So tonight I'm going to play 
a creepy train tale from a similar area. A video from WKRN, ABC News out of Nashville, about a legendary ghost on a set of tracks. Living Magazine named it one of the country's top haunted places, and it's right here in Middle Tennessee. Chapel Hill, the townspeople tell a tale of a strange light along the dark train tracks. Mm, some have reportedly even died just trying to catch a glimpse of it. Josh Broslow continues our day-long Haunted Tennessee coverage with a look at the mysterious Chapel Hill ghost light. Many years ago along the railroad track one night, a man was walking home and held a lantern for his light. A town of nearly 1,500. He never heard the whistle scream or the mighty engine pound. He never even knew it when that freight train ran him down. Chapel Hill is home to one of Tennessee's most haunted tales. The engineer ran back in time to see the poor man die. But as he neared the tragic spot, a light rose in the sky. There's a ghost light over the railroad, shining in the Chapel Hill sky. Claiming to have seen the Chapel Hill ghost light himself, songwriter John Rickman has heard just about every variation of the story behind it. It's known pretty far and wide. Most involve a headless signal man or train brakeman wandering the tracks using the light to guide his way. But if you ask Rickman, only one tale is true. His name was Skip Agent. Many years ago, Skip was hit by a train. He was killed, and from that point on, the light was seen out here after that time. The birth of the ghost light. It goes across the track sometimes, sways back and forth across the track. Sometimes it comes up, sometimes it goes back, and uh, you're looking for it, and then it falls over behind you some way. It's, it goes behind you. This picture, just one of many, snapped along the tracks. Unknown. It's a mystery. Over the years, people have come from all over, spending the night along the tracks, even throwing parties. And the crowds sometimes would get so rowdy, and some even brought guns to shoot at the light to see if they could bring it down. There was one person killed from Bedford County out on the railroad track. He was so enamored by the light that he came out here and got too close to the track and got hit, hit by train as I understand. Looking at the ghost light will make your blood run cold. It moves along the railroad track and haunts you very soul. As the town of Chapel Hill expands, there have been fewer reported sightings of the light, but Rickman believes it's there, and believers will still show up hoping for a glimpse of that mysterious ghostly glow. A spirit holds a lantern high for all the world to see. For Haunted Tennessee, Josh Breslow, News 2. Now the picture that's included is quite interesting. So if you have a chance, I suggest going to the show notes for tonight's episode and watching this video yourself. Thank you guys for sticking around to the end of the show. Have yourselves a great night. Thank you.
On a summer night, Douglas Wagg Jr. lay motionless across a strip of railroad tracks before being struck by an oncoming train. I'm investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra, and my investigation into exactly how Doug died took me into the depths of a bizarre mystery. It was really hard to understand what was fact and what wasn't. A mystery that has led me from one suspicious death to another. Listen to CounterClock now, wherever you listen to podcasts.